morning, church. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in two places today. Um, most of the time, we're going to spend in Matthew chapter 14 as we get rolling this morning. And then after that, we're going to spend time, uh, well, before that, we'll spend time in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 a little bit as we uh, jump through the Word. We're talking about something very familiar and very foreign today. Um, we're talking about how to study your Bible. And as we've been walking through this idea of remembering that we're a part of something bigger and a bigger relationship with God, it, it, we're walking through what things cultivate and help that relationship stay healthy. And, and a part of our vision of our church is to be a community of faith that glorifies God by embracing his word. Yet that embrace feels sometimes like a slippery pig, right? I mean, it's just sometimes it feels like trying to get our grip on a relationship with the Lord and to get close to him it just feels like it eludes us at times and so one thing we're going to look at is embracing the word through bible study so a little bit of an orthodox approach to the sermon today we're just going to be walking through i i I typed out my my journal this week i don't normally do that but i'm going to be walking you through some of the ways that i studied the word this week and i wanted to be able to read it to you anyone else have a problem reading your own handwriting at times that's good. I appreciate it by confessing. It's good to be uh, in good company. Um, the definition of the word study is this. The noun is the application of the mind to the acquisition of knowledge as by reading, investigation, or reflection. The verb form of study is this, <clears throat> to apply oneself to the acquisition of knowledge as by reading, study, or investigation. Th- this idea is that study is about gathering, applying yourself to gather information, knowledge in, and you would say a good study is for a purpose. And so I was just kind of doing some research on that this week, and I came across this chart. Let's see if we have a, a chart on the screen. So this is is how we spend our spare time. And by spare time, what we really mean is not asleep at night and not at work. So this is how we spend our spare time, just kind of a broken down graphic by age, sports, socializing, TV, reading, relaxing games, and other. Um, I don't know if you noticed it, but TV is a pretty monstrous one, right? I mean, it's a pretty big one in there. Here, here's some things that I saw when I read through this. <clears throat> First of all, ladies, on behalf of your husbands and men, you might turn and say, I'm sorry, I love you, dear. Ladies, you get 40 minutes less of spare time a day than men do. All right, you get 40 minutes less a day than men do in spare time. And uh, guys, you can, you can earn that back later on today. Um, relaxing, uh, back in that graphic, relaxing was a really small one kind of across the board. Uh, relaxing in there, um, parents of preschoolers six and under you get 18.6 minutes a day on average to relax does that feel right here's hope parents of teenagers you only get 11 so it's a long way to go still it's a long way to go uh, in that um here's here's an interesting one if you're 65 or older you average watching just over four hours a day of tv just hour over that. Now, no one get excited because everybody's blue dots were huge in TV and in engagement, but just over four hours a day. To put that in perspective, if you combined everyone's relaxing minutes, 
that of all ages, you, you spend time, more time watching TV than all age groups spend relaxing. It's a pretty amazing thing. The same thing would go for reading. Um, but, but in that, uh, let me make everybody feel, feel better. The average American spends 11 hours in 2020, 11 hours and 54 minutes a day connected to some form of media. 11 hours and 54 minutes. Y'all doing the math? How many hours in a day? 24. 24. I'm assuming most people sleep at least five of those, right? Um, and I'm counting that time when you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and can't go back until sleep until 3.30, right? Five hours of sleep. I mean, 12 hours a day connected to media. Listen, four hours a day connected to TV. 12 hours a day. Church, that's the definition of study. So I started to look and say, what are Americans studying? Well, Americans spent 33.9 billion minutes watching Criminal Minds last year. 33.9 billion minutes. Just to make you feel good, if you don't have time for that, uh, there's a show that only has eight episodes called Coco Melon. It's, it's like a nursery rhyme preschool show. Americans spent 33.3 billion minutes. Now check this out. That's 2.2 billion minutes per episode. Watching that. That is the definition of study. Amen? If Americans spent 2.2 billion minutes per year on anything in the Bible, wouldn't that be amazing? It would be so, it would be so good. Now, all those here catch out, there are some other shows that I don't even want to give credit to that are inappropriate for, for believers because they're content that are actually right under Coco Melon for adults when it comes to what we put in our minds and bodies and what we study in that way. And, and, and I thought the reality is, it's not that we don't know how to study, it's that we've kind of gotten used to just consuming information in the least um, intensive way possible. And media tends to do that. Does anyone, I won't make you say, does anyone just turn the TV on a news station and leave it in your on in your house for background noise? Anybody do that? Yeah, right? I mean, that's, I think that's how Coco Melon gets so many watches, right? I mean, that's just putting it in your head and in your heart. That's where memorization and meditation comes in as a part of study. So it's not that we're foreign to study. I think it's that one produces something or alleviates something, and we don't always know how to do that with the Bible. And so today, we're going to do what, what I think we, we can do realistically in learning how to be a part of this incredible relationship with God. So, so a lot of times, we, we think about God as so distant. I want you to think about a relationship in your life. Any person in your life, wife, husband, parents, grandparents, friend, co-worker, child, anyone that you want to get to know well, just that you want to get to know well, and, and you want to build a strong relationship with them. I'm going to give you two ways to build that relationship. One, don't talk to them but you just try 300,000 different ways to throw something against that relationship wall until something grows and shows progress. So that's one, one way to build your relationship. 
The other way to build this relationship is to take a step back, engage with them, watch them, watch what makes them smile and what makes them blossom as a person, what strengthens them, talk to them about it, study, get to know their past, and then build upon what they tell you and show you. Which one of those do you think yields better fruit? Option A, throw it and see if it sticks. That is good. If you're dating in the room, that's not a good plan. Right? No, no. The obvious answer is I want to get to know who you are. If I care about you as a person, I want to get to know you. Otherwise, it's kind of narcissistic in saying, I just want to feel better about myself and you make me feel better about myself. When it comes to God, what we're just going to do is just get to know him and allow, as we get to know him, that to be a way to get to know him better. And that sounds really, really crazy, but in short, this is what it means. What if we were just to study God's word using God's word as instruction? See, I, I think we are so foreign to study in our life when it comes to God's word that we tend to need a written book. We tend to need a conversation, a radio station, a pastor. To, we tend to need that, and all those, those are all good. I want to let you know you don't need that. You've got a stronger teacher that, that you need to spend time with the Holy Spirit. And don't get me wrong, as a pastor, I believe we need teaching in the church. And we'll talk about that. But let's start with your relationship with God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. If you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. This is what the Word says. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, God-given through Paul. Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. For what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In this passage, I don't think this is the only way to study Scripture. But if you don't know how to study Scripture, I love Philippians 4, 8, and 9 as a, as a template. In fact, if I go down to verse 9, it, it's pretty clear. The Bible says, what you've learned, received, heard in me, practice it, and the God of peace will be with you. So, so that starts to beg the question, if I want the God of peace to be with me as close as possible, I want to build that relationship, what, what do I need to do? Well, I need to look to godly examples or biblical examples in Paul or God's word itself. So, okay, if I want then to be close to God and I know I have to practice them, what am I to practice? Well, verse 9, just go backwards. I need to practice the things that I have heard, that I have seen, that I've received, and that I've learned. Then we have to say, well, where do I hear, see, receive, and learn? Well, Scripture would say, well, why don't you think on these things? pure, excellent, holy, lovely, honorable, just, excellent. If that filter was our only filter in life and we put it on everything we watched, consumed, thought about, or took in, I'm telling you, I think it would be life-changing. 
But, but let's not start off too big because I think sometimes we get so excited about the end that we feel too far away. Let's just take a step. Next to you or in every other seat, we put some um, handouts. If you don't have one uh, and you're watching with us online, you'll just walk through us. The, the notes will be on the screen. I, I want you to, to use this to fill out, but also you can... Uh, use this as a template if you lose this the world's not over this is philippians chapter 4 verse 8 that's what this is all right so i just put lines under it and we have a pretty graphic to help us study what i want to do is i want to walk you through a passage of scripture that i got to study in this week using philippians 4 8 as my guide and so a little unconventional i want to show you what the lord revealed to me as an example so that if you don't know how to draw near to God, if you don't know how to study your Bible, or if you've ever read the Bible and say, I read it and it's just blank. I read it and I just don't get anything out of it. This is just the place to start. So I want to look at a very familiar passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Most of us were familiar with that. In verse 13 is where that story begins. Um, I want you to, to know this story we don't talk a lot about as adults. We tend to leave it to our children a whole lot. We, we tend to just kind of go to the meteor stuff. But, but here's the funny thing. Out of all four Gospels, outside of the resurrection miracle, there's only one miracle that every Gospel writer records. There's only one, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And, and God wasn't writing just to children through this. He had something powerful for us. Because the feeding of the 5,000 happens on the heels of Jesus finding out that John the Baptist... His cousin, his friend, has just been killed and beheaded. He is worn out. And then we find ourselves in verse 13. Let's look at verse 13, and then we'll walk through my journal as we study today. The Bible says this. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard of it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Well, they said to him, we only have five loaves here and, and two fish. And he said, that's Jesus, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking those five loaves and two fish. He looked to heaven, he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and he gave it to them, to the disciples. And the disciples gave it to the crowds. And they, the crowd and the disciples, all ate and were satisfied. And they, broke, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, maybe today's the first time you've ever read that story. Um, but I would assume for a lot of people, it's not one that's unfamiliar, even if you've never read it. But what happens when we study it using God's word? So let's just do that. The Philippians chapter 4 starts off and says, Whatever is true. 
So when I looked at this passage, I wrote out these words. What truth is God revealing here? What is he revealing to me? And there's a lot of truths in there. I don't want to be a rocket science about it, but here's what I read. In verse 17, it's pretty powerful um, in this. It says, and they said to him, we, uh, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And if you read through all the gospels together, you kind of see they found a young man who brought some food, right? Some fish and some loaves. And they said, this is all we have. And for me, there was a truth that hit my heart pretty hard. And this is what I wrote in my journal. Lord, you can take my insufficient sacrifice and make it a part of your all-sufficient plan you can take my insufficient sacrifice and make it a part of your all-sufficient plan that that truth hit me like a like a lead weight when when i was reading that passage here there's no way five thousand men plus women and children these two fish these five loaves this little bit of of stuff is going to take care of anyone but the disciples when jesus said give them something to eat they say all we've got on us, all we can round up is just this. It's way insufficient. It's not enough, but I will give it to you. In, in that moment where I started thinking that, that here, just in this moment, this truth, that God can take my insufficient gift and make it a part of his all-sufficient plan. I was reading uh, just a little bit of church history in the last few weeks, and a story stuck out to me. Uh, there's a, a building called uh, St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. It's this amazingly holy, beautiful place. Um, the, the Pope at the time was running low on money to finish out building this building. And so, because he was wrote on, kind of worn out on money, he unintentionally started what they would call a revolution or a rebellion, what historians would call the Reformation. See, what, what happened here is this. They didn't have enough, so they had to take out a loan from God. So the Pope said, you can sell extra uh, indulgences. You can sell extra things that will shorten people's times in purgatory for a little financial gain and help them finish this building on earth. And it got so crooked and so wicked, it started this, this revolution. And I thought about that, and I thought, how interesting. When God puts something out there, when God puts something on my heart, it, does he need does he need me to be the chief gatherer, or does he need me to be obedient with my insufficientness? I mean, think about that. It, it, it's one thing to think that God needs my help. Church, I just want to let you know, God doesn't need my insufficient gift. This is the rest of my journal. When I give to God, God's not running short on funds. He's demonstrating his power. Be faithful. Test me in this. Taste and see. I can trust the Lord with all that I have, and I don't want to miss out, nor do I want to help God out. He doesn't need it. But I think there's something more. You see, when I study God's word, I, I want to consider what in scripture inspires what I, what I think the Lord is showing to me. And then I write down what the Lord's showing me. But then there's something else I do. I make sure that what I have written down is supported by God's word. You see, because if you write something down that God's showing you in scripture and it is contradictory to God's word, you're wrong. Amen? All right, let's just say that together. You're gonna say, I'm wrong. When you write something down that God has shown you and it contradicts God's word, who's wrong? I'm wrong. 
That's exactly right, right? That, that's, that's a huge deal. So we want to look into it. And so looking through it, I, all kinds of examples came to mind. But I remembered how uh, the, in Matthew 19, the disciples are saying, who can follow you if you have to give up everything? Who's going to be there? We've done all these things. Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers, children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And when I read that, I thought, Lord, just like every disciple, every person in history, everything I have is still just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread when it comes to your master plan. But what your word says is, if you will give me all that you are for all that I am, then you will be a part of my all-sufficient blessing. Church, whatever is true, think on these things. Could, could you imagine just grabbing a hold of that one thought all week and saying, God, everything I have is an investment. I just want to be a part of what you're doing, whatever it looks like, because my insufficient gift, I want to be a part of your all-sufficient plan. Philippians goes a little bit further on your, your deal and whatever is honorable. So when I look at God's word, I think, okay, so what action here is demonstrated that's honorable? What honorable action is demonstrated? Again, back to verse 17. It says, now uh, we only have five loaves and two fish. Basically, they say, listen, we're just going to do what you say. You asked, give them something to eat, and we have no idea how it's going to happen. And so, okay, this is what we've got. I mean, at the risk of looking silly, this is what I've got. They, they were honorable. When Jesus told them all to have the crowd sit down, they went around and had them sit down. The gospel says they grouped them up in groups, spread out all over the countryside. Here, they just went through. Who knows what they could have thought? They didn't know what miracle was about to happen. They didn't know how Jesus was about to fulfill it. But when he spoke, they obeyed. And I thought in that moment, Lord, I want to trust in you even when it doesn't make sense. Because when I trust in you, it puts me in the front row seat to watch what you're going to do. I want to trust in you even when it doesn't make sense. Because, because when I follow you, it puts me in the front row seat to watch what you're going to do. Hey, church, have you ever thought about trusting God that way? That, that when you put it in God's hands, when you're obedient, when you're doing honorable in your action towards God, that what you're really doing is just getting in a front row seat. You're doing exactly what it tells you so you can watch him move. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we see this, this trend, this truth run all the way through Scripture. When, when the Lord is talking about going into the promised land and taking it, he says, listen, just obey me, keep my commands, follow me, Let, let's do this thing, and you watch and see, you will have peace, you will have this land, you will have life, I will be with you. He repeats that over and over and over through the Bible. Jesus then keeps repeating that same truth all the way to Revelation, that when we are obedient to God, that is such an honorable action that we get to see him do things that are amazing, God-only things. 
I just wrote, I want to be honorable in my obedience. You see, church, I, I think when I read this story, I think we have the temptation not to be honorably obedient. Maybe because we haven't, maybe because we haven't been used to it. Maybe because we don't know what fruit it will yield. And in that, we've come to church, we've walked through our life, we read the Bible every now and then, we sing some great songs of the Lord, but we've never seen God do amazing things. If you and I have never seen God do amazing things, here's what I know Scripture says. Be honorable in your obedience, and you will have a front row seat to watch what I do. God's not your, your genie. God's not going to do what you tell him to do, but you're going to have a front row seat to do what he tells you to do. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 would go on and say, whatever is just. The, the word just, I thought to that is, what moral trait or right action am I learning about God? What moral trait or right action am I learning about God? Verse 15 and 16, this was huge to me. It says this, now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is over now. Send the crowds away go in, to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus says, They need not go away. Give them something to eat. Here's what I wrote down. This is the moral trait that I saw. Jesus doesn't brush people off. You see, the disciples, they were taking inventory. They were talking about all the things. You're going to have to send them away. It's already late. This is going to be a problematic. They're going to get hungry. Who knows what they're going to expect out of us. They're kind of following you because it's miracles. They're just here because of what they want. So send them away now. And what Jesus says is, I'm not going to brush them off. I'm not going to brush them off. Jesus won't and isn't brushing me off ever I am his child part of his family how many times does Jesus remind me of this I will never leave you or forsake you he says this is my body broken for you come to me you weary and heavy laden I will give you rest church I serve the God who does not brush his children off Man, could you imagine walking through my week or your week just thinking on that? However, whatever comes against you, if you're wondering if God has it out for you, if you're wondering why things are quiet, if you don't know why things are happening at work, and you just pondering, thinking on, I serve the God who doesn't brush his family off. Your dad may have brushed you off. Your mom may have brushed you off. Your kids, your boss. But if you are in Christ, he does not brush his family off. In fact, he says, come to me. Man, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Philippians 4.8 says, I wrote down what pure quality is demonstrated or what sin is confronted in this passage. In verse 13 and 14, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew there into a boat in a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. What is pure? Jesus, God in the flesh, 
his cousin was just beheaded because a child's twisted birthday wish. He had just found out that someone he loved, he would now be separated from until he ascended into heaven. He knew the hurt of John's mother and their family. He knew that this would impact lives all over the region. And so he withdrew with his disciples just to kind of be alone, just to hurt. But the crowds, they, they followed him. They, they followed him on foot when he pulled away. And so when they came ashore and he saw the people following him and gathering around him, the Bible says he had compassion on them. And what did he do? He began to heal and he began to, to, to teach. This is what I wrote. My Lord is not someone trying to get it right. He is right. He's not someone who simply is a model. He is the one who makes the mold and is the mold. I can trust every word, hope in every instruction, and know he will never leave me, lead me away from goodness and the glory of God. I know his plans for me will always be for my good. I wrote, when we sing, I'm going to see a victory, that's truth. Because I have a Lord who through his weakness saw me still. Romans 8.28 says, In all things God works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's pure. You know, we, we kind of only see that love in a mother for their child. 1.30 a.m. infant time kind of love. A love that says, I am worn out, I am weary, I am toast, but I love you more. And that is the picture of my Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever is pure, the Bible says then, whatever is lovely. I, I just thought I can imagine the crowd being in the crowd Jesus is God, thinking he loves me and he provided for me. All the food has gotten passed out. This doesn't even make sense. I just wrote, like the disciples in the crowd, I have a place with the Lord. He called me and offered to me what it was, was just as strong, pure, and lovely. It's authentic. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What a lovely thought that in a crowd here, I know many of you, in the crowd of thousands, Jesus knew every single one of them and he was saying to them, I will provide. And what a lovely thought that we have a God who doesn't forget names. I have a friend of mine that used to write names on his hands so he wouldn't forget them when he met people. I tried that for a while. My hands sweat. Are you with me? Like, I forget things all the time. How lovely it is that I have a God who knows people's needs and who wants them to follow him. Three more. Whatever is commendable. The Bible says, whatever is commendable, think on these things. Is there an action in Scripture that deserves an attaboy? This is an encouragement. It's what I started thinking about. In, in there, I wrote verse 18 and 19. In verse 18, it says, and, they, and he said, bring them here to me. 
So then they ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, took five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowd. Here's what I thought was missing. There was no sulking, no complaining, and no pushback. And that is not true of the disciples. Peter says, Lord, it'll never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Thomas says, whoa, 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 I don't think I can take this all in. I don't think it's going to happen. Fall away. Can you imagine Matthew, the tax collector, like, Lord, 200 denaries, not enough. I don't know what's going to happen. These were whiny, complaining people at time. Ladies, they were men. Are you following me? Like, they, they could have had a lot. But what is missing here is they didn't sulk, they didn't complain, and they didn't give a hard time. To the Lord. So this is what I wrote down. I do these things. I do these things. I find myself giving God a hard time even when I'm following him. These guys didn't. They followed through. They obeyed. They trusted. Well done. That's the kind of faith I want developed in my life. A faith that means when I sing wherever you lead I'll go, you, it won't be in a way that makes you think or wish I wouldn't come. Right? I mean, how many times have you done that with the Lord? Where you've said, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll come. But regretfully, it's like a four-year-old having no nap through the candy aisle at the grocery store. Like, no, I really wish wherever I leave, you would stay behind. You follow me? I just thought, what an incredible attaboy. God, I am guilty of sulking and complaining and crying about not having things my way. Or why I have to go through this. Or why you do this. I just, Lord, I just need to whine to you. And Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of the things not seen. And for by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. What needs to be commended? A faith that didn't whine, that didn't make excuses, that didn't sulk when God didn't take my idea. boy. I, I want to be someone that the Lord can say boy to sometime. Like, I'm with you. I'm going to follow you without weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a powerful truth in this scripture. That's something I want in my life. Whatever is excellent, think on these things. I just wrote, do you get a glimpse of God's holiness in this passage? Here's what I saw in verse 19. Jesus ordered them to sit down on the grass, taking five loaves and two fish. He looked to heaven and he said a blessing. He made sure everyone knew the Father was the one to get the glory. He made sure everyone knew that it was the Lord God on high who was doing the miracle here. And so I wrote, there's no denying the consistency of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His statements flood my mind. I am the Father or one. I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. I speak only what the Father tells me. I want to be one who never ceases to give God all the glory. 
in a moment that is validated by my daily action. I want him to increase and me to decrease. I want to be where people are so they can see my good works and give glory to my Father in heaven. In other words, God, don't put the spotlight on me. Let me behind the spotlight and anything I do, just follow you and give you glory. Church, when you get a raise, when you get a promotion, when someone compliments your kid for acting good on a field trip, are you giving God the glory? Are you making sure that everyone knows that everything in you, it's from the glory of God? When someone says to you, men, boy, you married up, what do you say? Praise God, right? If, listen, bad action is, what do you mean? Give God the glory. That's excellent. It's excellent that Jesus made sure over and over and over and over again, Lazarus raised from the dead, let me pray to God and let you all know this is the God Almighty who does it. Moses, part in the Red Sea, who's in charge of this? The Lord's in charge of it. All the way through, God is not asking you to steal his spotlight, but instead be excellent and put the spotlight on him. That's what I want to do. This week, what would happen if I just went through thinking of one excellent thing? God, I want to put the spotlight on you at every second. When I'm driving down the road and I want to cut someone off, how do I put the spotlight on you? It's not by having a Jesus bumper that says, Jesus would let me in too. That's not how it works. When my child disappoints me, when my sin overwhelms me, Will I give God glory and think, God, you are excellent from redemption to restoration to victory? Think on these things. And the last one is this. Whatever is praiseworthy. What in this passage gives you a reason to celebrate? Verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Thought that's praiseworthy. When I was considering it, my first thought I really wrote down there were leftovers. There were leftovers. God took just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, and there were leftovers. Here's what I wrote in my journal The love of Christ doesn't run dry, it isn't just enough. It's abundant. Enough to offer salvation to every man, every woman, every child throughout history. All who would drink of this new covenant, there is plenty. All who would feast on the bread of truth, you will be fully satisfied. And you can invite everyone you know, and there will still be leftovers. Because the grace of God, the power of God is greater than anything you can think. And that's not my word. That's scripture, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than I could think or imagine, there are leftovers. Church, this morning, I, I don't know where you are. I, I don't know how you study the word. I, I don't know how confusing it can get. It, it, it's not rocket science. Follow me is what the Lord says. His spirit leads us to places like Philippians 4, 8. 
I would encourage you, I would challenge you, study your word. This, if you don't have a way, if you have been wondering how, just go think on these things. Lord, when I read this passage, is it what is true? What is just? What is holy? What is excellent? What is pure? What is lovely? What is praiseworthy? And then all week long, study, think on these things. 3.33.2 billion minutes. Think on these things. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you are far from him, just look into his word. This passage today would make one thing clear, that Jesus Christ is the son of the only living God. And he is that only son who will not brush off those who follow him. His grace is enough to cover every sin you have ever done, to cover every stain and to fill every void. He's not waiting to scold you and ask you why you didn't come earlier. He's inviting you to follow now and forevermore. But you have to give over your insufficient life and put it into his hands and ask him to let you be a part of his all-sufficient plan. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. Oh, to think on these things. But I just want to think on them right now. Lord, I want to be, I want to be faithful. I want, I want to live a life that encourages others. I want to live a commendable life. Thank you for examples in your word of commendable actions. Lord, I want to think about how pure you are when the world tells me something else. That when you were tired and weary, you still said, come to me. Lord, let us be a church that embraces your word. If there's a man or woman or child watching today or in this room, God, Lord, I pray that your spirit would direct them from and through your word to your throne. And that they would take that step of obedience, that honorable action. Surrender all that they are for all that you are. So they can have a front row seat at the God of the universe doing immeasurably more than they could ask or imagine. And it is through Christ Jesus' name we pray.